Well, my name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. I'm excited to be with you this morning. Uh, I think it's significant, again, at the end of John's gospel, John records Jesus telling Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep in John chapter 21. We're a long ways from John chapter 21. In fact, we're not going to get that until post-Easter, that specific text, uh, which is next year. So uh, we won't get there today, but I do think it's significant that Jesus reinstates Peter John records and he says, feed my sheep. That has to do with physical feeding, but it also has to do with spiritual feeding, feeding one another the truth of God's word. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I hope to feed you with God's word as God cares about us holistically. Would you join me as I pray this morning? Lord Jesus, we love you. We're grateful that we get to be here in the presence of one another and that you grace us with your presence. Lord Jesus, you told your disciples as you ascended into heaven that you would be with us always until the end of the age. And specifically, you said that as they go out and make disciples, your presence is uniquely with them. And Lord, this is the discipleship event right here and now. We gather to be formed by you. We want to be disciples and grow as disciples, followers of Jesus. And we want to make more disciples, followers of Jesus. And so we thank you for this time and space that we're able to carve out to do that. Pray that you would speak to us this morning. You would guide us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as I read our text for today. John chapter 13, verses 36 through John chapter 14, verse 14. John 13, 36 through 14, 14. It's on page 900 in the Pew Bible. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And if you were here the last couple weeks, you remember that Jesus is just about to leave the disciples now. He's about to go to the cross. And so he's preparing them for his departure and his coming death. Peter, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, you will, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves." Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. 
Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So right now, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we ask to make yourself seen and known among us, that we would love you with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and love our neighbor as ourself. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may have a seat. I remember the day very clearly a couple of years ago. I got a phone call from someone in our church, and they said, Pastor, could you come to the hospital? My mom is on her deathbed. I don't think she has much time to live. And so as quickly as I could, I got my stuff organized, and I got over to the hospital. And by the time I had gotten to the hospital, this person's mom had died. And there, this lady from our church sat over the bed, holding her mom's hand, saying, Mom, don't leave me. Mom, don't leave me. Mom, don't leave me. There's no breath. The nurses had already prepped me before I went in that this person had passed away. And there this lady sat. Mom, don't leave me. Don't leave me. I know this lady's story, and I know some of what she's walked through, and the prospect of living life without her mom here on this earth was terrifying to her. It created worry and fear about what might come. How will she live without the loving support and presence of her mother? This is a normal thing that we experience with loss, separation anxiety. It's something that we experience on Sunday mornings when we gather and you hear the parents just trying to get their kid to go to the nursery, right? The crying, the screaming, if you are a parent, if, you, if you're an older parent, think back to those early days. If you're a younger parent, you know you're living in the midst of it. I'm still dealing with this with my kids, and they are growing. Like, dad, dad, don't leave me. Dad, don't go. Mom, don't leave me. Mom, don't go. That's part of our life. Separation anxiety is a normal thing for most people. For most kids, some level of separation anxiety, and then even as we grow, and we form attachments to people. We, we don't want them to leave us, whether it's on their deathbed. Mom, don't leave me. Don't leave me. How will I do life without you? I'm going to live without the secure attachment that I've formed to you. Or a child. Mom, Dad, don't leave me. I don't want to go to the nursery. It stinks in there. Yes, it does. And it's your stink, child. This is the situation that we have in our text for today. Separation anxiety. The disciples are living with this present fear and sadness and worry about Jesus leaving. He has just said that I am about to leave. And so let's look at John 13, verse 31, 32, and 33. I didn't read this this morning. This was last week. But to go back and get a little more context, let's look at it. Jesus, when he had gone out, and that's Judas. Remember, two weeks ago, we talked about Judas leaving from among their fellowship. Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I, where I am going, you cannot come. So in the setting, Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. He has washed their feet. They have taking the Lord's Supper together, the Last Supper, they're, they're celebrating the Passover meal where Jesus takes the, the bread and the cup and reminds them that these symbolize my body, and that they're a reminder of the, of the event in Egypt when God passed over his people. 
And now they're also a, a, a remembrance for you to take and partake of in the future that you remember my body given for you upon a cross and my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, the shedding of my blood. And so Jesus has done that with the disciples. They're still sitting in the upper room. There's, this is this long, lingering, drawn-out meal that Jesus is having with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And, and he's, he's preparing them for his departure and his death. He's going to leave their midst, be dragged off to the cross. He's going to be crucified and die. And he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And it starts to create in them some anxiety, separation anxiety. Now keep in mind that these disciples, they all had lives and families and career paths for themselves. Many of the disciples were going to be fishermen. Their fathers were fishermen. They were going to follow in their father's trade. They had an agenda, a plan for life. Jesus came along. This rabbi invited them to follow him, and they gave up their own agenda to follow Jesus. And now he's saying, I'm going to leave, and you can't come with me. And they're like, what does that mean for us? What is the future going to look like? How, we, we've given up everything to follow you, and now you're telling us that you're not going to be elected the king of the world? And, and in the other gospels, it records that in this moment, they're all fighting about who can have a place of prominence next to Jesus. See, see, they think that Jesus is going to be elected king. Like he's going to create a one world order, a world of peace through the political powers and the religious institutions. And they're like, what do you mean you're going to leave? And we can't come with you. We've staked everything on you. And they're beginning to experience anxiety. I think it's interesting. Look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And so Jesus has just done three things. He's taught them theologically about his glory. He's warned them that he's about to leave. And he's also given them an application. Love one another, right? In verses 31 through 35. He's talked about his glory and oneness with the Father. I'm going to leave. You ought to love one another. And I think it's so fascinating that out of those three things, Peter doesn't seem to care about the theological point of God's glory. All right? Jesus just said, I will be glorified. I'm one with the Father. And a lot of us are like, that's the most important point of this text. That's the theology of this text of what's happening here. The application, the working out of our theology is love one another. We talked about that last week. And, and, and many of us are like, that's the most important thing. Peter doesn't seem to care about the relational application of Jesus' ways at this moment. He also doesn't seem to care about the theological idea of God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ. He seems relationally attached to Jesus and he's experiencing separation anxiety of the fact that Jesus is going to leave. This is the question that he asks him. Lord, where are you going? He doesn't say, explain to me this glory thing. He doesn't say, teach me how to love others. He says, don't leave me. Where are you going? I want to come with you. Jesus responds to him in verse 36. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. This is like a prophetic reminder. You, you will die. We sing it in one of our songs, until you return or call me home, right? Jesus is saying, there is a destiny for you. You, you will follow me. In fact, Peter will end up being martyred for his faith. He will literally follow in the ways of Jesus in dying for his beliefs and for his ethic. He says, but you can't follow me now. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Like, let me come. Don't leave me. 
Don't leave me behind. Don't leave me alone. Don't leave me with these fools. All right, the other disciples, like, man, this is just a ragtag group of people without Jesus. Peter is a zealot. He's like the politically and religious charged one among the group. Matthew, he, if you remember, before God called him, he was like embezzling money and in bed with the Roman government. And so Peter's like, man, without Jesus in this group, we're, we are a weird mix of people. There is no hope. Jesus, don't leave us. I don't want to get stuck with Matthew. I don't, I don't want to get stuck with James and John. And John, he's arrogant. He just said that he's the one that you love. And don't you love me? And that, don't leave us. He says, I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And Jesus is, is telling Peter what's about to happen. You're actually going to deny me in public. See, Peter has the zeal without knowledge. Wherever you go, I will go. Some of us have had zeal without knowledge. Like, I'm ready to do anything for the Lord. I'm willing to give up anything for the Lord. We sing that stuff sometimes. And then God comes knocking. He's like, hey, remember what you said when you sang at church on Sunday that you'd give up anything? I'm ready to take this. And you're like, nope, nope, nope. I was just zealous. I didn't have the knowledge of what you would actually ask me to give up. I'm not ready to give it up yet. And so this is a reality for all of us as disciples. When we follow Jesus... There's this zeal, which we ought to have, we should have, but oftentimes our zeal is lacking knowledge. And so let's be gracious with one another. Let's be gracious with ourselves. If we see Peter having this transformation in following Jesus, you and I can have grace for ourselves and one another as we have transformation in following Jesus. Jesus answered him, you will lay down your life for me, huh? Or he, he asked the question, right? And before, he said, you will follow me, right? In verse 36, you will follow me. Yeah, you're going to. But he's, he's kind of getting at Peter's heart. Will you do this? You, you, you will deny me three times. And so that's going to be really important when we get to John 21 after Easter. Keep in mind, I'll remind you of it a couple months from now. Keep in mind that Peter denies Jesus three times. And then John, I'll spoil it for you now in John 21 Jesus three times tells Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. This incredible way that Jesus relationally meets his fallen disciples who feel shame and disappointment in how they have turned their back on Jesus. And Jesus lifts up Peter's head. He says, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. That's what Jesus does with each one of us. That's, that's kind of a side note. It has nothing to do with this specific sermon and text. Here's the situation, separation, anxiety. That's what the disciples are feeling. And we move into, I mean, I mean, look at chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why does Jesus say this? Because their hearts are troubled. This idea of trouble, the, the, the Greek word here means to be stirred up. Internally, they're feeling anxious. You know that feeling of anxiety like, and for you, it may not be separation anxiety. I don't know what it is, but, but internally, when you feel stirred up, when you're like, things aren't right, I'm losing control, I'm, I'm worried about the future, I'm worried about what might happen, I have no control over this situation. That's what the disciples are feeling, the trouble in their hearts. 
And this word hearts, it means the inner being, the inner man, the inner woman. It doesn't just mean the organ in our chest. It's actually biblically, the mind and the heart are more connected. It's the inner soul, the inner being. So Jesus is saying, let not your inner person, your inner man, your inner woman, be stirred up, be troubled. That's what they're feeling in this moment. Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave. And, and they're feeling this way. And I think it's interesting that in verse 33, Jesus addresses them as children, right? He says, little children. He knows that they're going to be feeling this, this type of separation anxiety that our children often feel because they've developed a secure attachment to one that they ought to be attached to. And when you rip away a secure attachment, it does something. You feel it in you. And so Jesus, he's actually calling the disciples to be like children, I mean, throughout the Gospels, Jesus says childlike faith is what we ought to have. Not childish faith, where we don't ask hard questions, but childlike faith, where even in the midst of hard things, we're able to trust someone else. We're developing a secure attachment to someone else. And so they've developed this, and they're starting now to feel this separation anxiety. This is the situation. What's the solution? Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, what he tells them is in the midst of this separation anxiety, as you're trying to figure out what it's going to look like to live life without me. I think fascinating, right? You and I, we've lived our entire life without the physical presence of Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit, which Jesus is going to go on to teach in the, in the coming verses and chapters. And we're going to do some deep diving onto the Holy Spirit and how he works in our life and, and what his role is. But you and I haven't ever had a physical relationship with Jesus where he's in our midst. The disciples had that. And he's prepping them. That's not going to be forever. Don't worry. I won't leave you as orphans or as children, he says. I will send a helper, a Holy Spirit. So again, we'll get there in the coming weeks. But in this moment, they're experiencing this separation anxiety, and he says, calm your inner being. That's literally what verse 1 means here. Let not your hearts be troubled. Calm your inner being. Calm your inner being. And so for a moment, try to think about periods of your life where you feel stirred up, where you feel anxious. And then Jesus, in that moment, saying, calm your inner being. Maybe a spouse, maybe a parent, maybe a friend saying, calm down. Does that work? Not always, right? Sometimes. It depends on the tone. It depends on the approach. It depends on the relationship. Sometimes saying calm down is really helpful. Other times saying calm down is not helpful. That's essentially what Jesus is saying to the disciples here, though. In this moment, calm down. Let not your hearts be troubled. But it's not an empty piece of advice, right? And sometimes I think when it's annoying to us, when people give us advice, calm down, it's just empty. It's like, you don't understand what I'm dealing with. You're just throwing these trite statements at me. But when somebody knows you deeply and intimately, and when you know that person deeply and intimately, and they give you words of assurance and moments of anxiety, it tends to do something different than somebody that you're frustrated with or annoyed with or that you don't know well. So Jesus here relationally steps into the disciples' fear and anxiety. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. But he gives them 
some ways that they can calm down, right? It's not just an empty phrase without some information. And so let's look at how he does it. The, the way that we calm our inner being, the way that he tells the disciples to deal with their separation anxieties, number one, to trust someone greater. Stick with verse one, look at the second half of it. So he says, let not your hearts be troubled, calm down. Believe in God, believe also in me. This, this word believe, we've talked about this a lot through the Gospel of John, but it's really important to keep in mind and note. The Greek word is pistis. It means to, to believe or to trust or to have faith in. Now, in the West, we're all about cognitive thinking. We think that we can think our way into heaven, don't we? Believe the right doctrines. Believe the right truth. Believe the right things. And there is an element to the Christian faith of, of, of like theological understanding, doctrinal agreement. But that's not the heart of the word pistis. It's a piece of the word pistis. It's not the heart of the word pistis. The heart of the word pistis is to trust someone other than yourself. That's different than just cognitive functioning, right? It's actually saying that I, I am willing to step out in faith not knowing myself how this will go, how this will look, but trusting what somebody else is telling me. And so Jesus here is inviting the disciples in the midst of their anxiety, saying, let not your hearts be troubled, trust in God. See, anxiety and fear, it it comes from us not knowing the future, us realizing our control is limited. And in that moment, Jesus is saying, trust Trust, it's a, it's a relational connection, not a doctrinal conviction. That's what Jesus is calling the disciples to. That's what he is calling you and I to throughout the Gospel of John. And I'm not calling you to develop doctrinal convictions. Now, again, please hear me. He's not saying don't care about that. He's not saying that doctrinal conviction doesn't matter. That's not the primary thing that he is calling us to. The primary thing that he is calling us to is a relational connection with him, a secure attachment to him as a living, breathing being. So what he's doing with the disciples. Now, granted, you and I don't have him here in our midst as a living, breathing being. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. And his, his, his life and his ministry is going to live on through the church, through the ages, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And God's presence is in our midst. We're able to. You and I, just like the disciples here, are able to develop a secure attachment to the personhood of God, God the Father, Jesus the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we're dealing with anxiety, fear, and worry, whether it's separation anxiety from a loved one, whether it's separation anxiety from God, whether we're worried about our own faith and and our eternal security, here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, come here and trust me. Keep walking with me. Keep trusting me. God, Yahweh, is greater than you. Me, Jesus, I'm greater than you. And so trust. To experience peace in the midst of anxiety, we need to trust someone. And this is key. Trust someone who we know, right? You don't don't trust someone that you don't know. And you also trust somebody who knows you. And that's what John is unfolding here as he records Jesus' teaching. Actually, I should say Jesus is unfolding this for the disciples and John is recording it. 
that, that Jesus' ministry is to help us know that we are known by God experientially. And Jesus' ministry is help us to know God cognitively and experientially. And so he says, you, you can trust me. I'm greater than you. I know the outcome. I know the future. Peter, as you're dealing with anxiety, where are you going, Jesus? Why can't I come with you? I will go with you. Jesus here is even showing, I know the future, Peter. I know that you're going to deny me. And then I know that I'm going to come and I'm going to reinstate you. And I also know, I know that I'm going to send my spirit. He's going to walk with you. I know your life. I know that you're going to be martyred on my behalf. Just walk with me and trust. Walk with me and trust. That's the invitation to us in our anxiety is to trust someone greater. And it's someone greater who knows us deeply and intimately. And it's somebody that you and I are getting to know deeply and intimately. And God in his grace, I hope that he's giving us real life, tangible people who express the love of God, who can know us deeply and we can know them deeply as well. But as that's developed here on earth, the ultimate secure attachment that you and I need to engage our anxieties in life is Jesus. And we need to trust that he is greater. And because he's greater and he knows more than us, we can trust him. That's how trust is built. Secondly, he, he tells them to engage their anxiety by choosing a future outlook. So verse 2, he says, In my father's house are many rooms. How many of you know audio adrenaline? It's a big, big house. A couple of you? Song just popping in your head? It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. A big, big table with lots and lots of food. Sorry, I can't sing. That's why we have other people to do that job. Uh, Katie, could you cue up Big House Audio Adrenaline and at the end of the service play it on Spotify? That would be awesome as we walk out. Those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, God spared you from a weird Christian culture of the late 90s, early 2000s, and don't worry about it. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. He, he's starting to get them from looking at their present circumstances into the future. Because anxiety doesn't work when we're focused on the present or even looking at the past. Now, sometimes, I mean, we've got to look at the past. We've got to consider the present, right? You can't, be, uh, you can't be ignorant of the past and the present and how all those things shape you. But when you're dealing with anxiety, you have to look into the future. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, in my Father's house are many rooms. Remember, I'm going where I'm going, you can't come. Peter, where are you going, Jesus? And he gives Peter a little teaching about his own makeup and zeal and knowledge and just, don't worry, Peter, I'll deal with you later. And then verse 2, he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Where are you going, Jesus? I'm going to prepare a place for you because I, I love you and I want to be with you forever and I'm preparing a place for you. Isn't that amazing? You guys know when you've gone, gone to an Airbnb or to a hotel or to a friend's house or a family's house and it, the place has been prepared for you? That's a whole different experience than when you go somewhere and they haven't prepared, right? I, I helped somebody move years back. Oh man, and they were not prepared. We showed up and not a single thing was packed and they had to move that day. I was a youth pastor. We brought our youth group. We were all ready to like load the truck. We show up and this was a hoarder's house. 
There was stuff everywhere. It was not prepared and it did not feel good. But I've also gone to help people move who have had it prepared, right? Now, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, so sometimes we just have to do the dirty thing and help the person, right? But, but you know the difference when somebody's prepared for you to show up and someone's not prepared, right? And look at this heart of love that Jesus has for the disciples. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, verse 3, and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. He's saying you, you need to choose to have a future outlook, not to just get stuck in the momentary trials and struggles of life or even the momentary joys and blessings of life. Sometimes we just spin our wheels in negativity because we are stuck in the trials and the struggles of the moment and we forget to look to the future and say, this isn't everything, there is a future out there. Other times we get stuck in the joy and the blessings and then we just consume and we consume and we consume all of God's blessings and we forget God himself. And he's saying, either way, I don't care about your momentary circumstances, don't get stuck there. They're, they're there for a reason. I've either blessed you or I'm testing you in this moment for a reason, but you got to look past this momentary circumstance and look to the future. There's something more out there. And, and disciples, I'm leaving to go and prepare a place for you. He's speaking about heaven here. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to prep a place for you. And let's not get into weird theology where we try to figure out, like, is there an actual house in heaven? He said, I go to prepare a place for you. It has many rooms. It's a mansion. It, Jesus is just saying that there's this future dwelling in the presence of God, and I will be there, and me and God the Father are preparing that place for you. I'm about to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to be here with you now, helping you do life and ministry here and now, walking through your struggles and trials and your joys and your blessings with you here and now, but I'm going to prepare a place for you with the Father. It's God's dwelling and you will join that dwelling. Revelation 21, John, the author of this letter, has a vision. He also writes the book of Revelation and in Revelation 21, he says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. There will be no more tears anymore, no more suffering or pain anymore. For behold, I have made all things new. Jesus is preparing the disciples for that. He's preparing you and I for that. He's saying regardless of your current circumstances, church, we need to continually remind one another to look to the future, to have a future outlook. For the future is hopeful. The future is free of sin and its effects. There is a future for you, and it is a positive future where Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. As we sang this morning, ah, we didn't sing it. Trish read it from 1 Peter, this future that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's what Jesus is trying to remind us of. Look to the future. Don't get stuck in your momentary circumstances, whether good or bad. Have a future outlook. Choose to consider the future and the promises that I have given you for the future. And then lastly, what Jesus is doing in this text is, is saying, in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our anxiety, and dealing with some kind of anxiety, whatever your anxiety is about life, we, we, we need to trust someone greater, we need to choose to look to the future, and then we need to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's what he's doing here in this text. Look at verse 4. He says, and you know the way to where I'm going. So their, their fear is, Jesus, you're leaving. We don't know how to live life without you. We're, we're feeling anxiety about it. He says, and you know where I am going. 
And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One of the most quoted scriptures in all of the Bible, and one of the most important. This is extremely foundational for our faith. That Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. All of the Gospel of John is recording Jesus trying to help us to see who God is in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. To know who God is in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And to love who God is in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here Jesus is saying, look to me, Thomas, Lord, Lord, we don't, how do we know where you're going? You're going to leave us. How do we know? And he's saying, just keep looking at me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 7, if you had known me, if you had seen me and known me and loved me, you would have seen and known and loved the Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And so Jesus here tells us that he's both the way and the truth and the life. And so this idea of Jesus as the way, it means that he's the path or he's the journey or he's the road to God the Father, to eternal life. To follow the way, to follow Jesus as the way, it requires repentance. This is Jesus' first invitation to his disciples. When, when he breaks on the scene, he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. To repent means to turn directions, to turn from following the world and the flesh and the devil. And to instead follow me. To believe in Jesus as the way means to repent from our own agenda, our own way of doing things, our own interpretation, the world and the flesh and the devil. And his second invitation is follow, right? And so Jesus breaks on the scene. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So the way of Jesus is to repent. It's to turn from the direction that we're going and to turn to him. And then his invitation is to follow me. And so it's like, you're going this direction, The world, the world ideology, the world view is sending you this way. The devil and his deception is sending you this way. And your own flesh and its desires and cravings is sending you this way. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God. Turn. Now follow me. Walk with me. So Jesus proclaiming that he is the way means that he is our way to salvation. That's it. He's the only way to eternal life. There's not multiple options for getting to eternal life. Jesus is the way. He's the road. He's the path. Jesus as the way is also a call to action. Right? And so, so Jesus as the way, it's, it, 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 it's multifaceted. Throughout the scriptures, we see the, this idea of the way used a lot. And so Jesus, when he says, I am the way, he's saying, I am the way to salvation. That's one of the ways that I am the way. Another way that Jesus is the way is he shows us how to live. He is the way for us to live. Look at John 13, verse 15. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but as Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. I am the way. As you watch me, as you, as you read my stories, I am the way, as in I am the one providing for you the way in which you should live. 
not just the path to heaven, but also the way to walk on the path towards heaven. So he is salvation. He is the way to salvation. He is the call to action. The followers of Jesus were given the name, the way in the book of Acts. It says that they're, that, that, that they're this sect of, of Jews who follow Jesus as the way. And then I also just want to kind of pastorally pause right here and consider when Jesus says, I am the way. So he is, like pastorally, I want to say there's multiple ways to travel on the way, right? Sometimes here's where we get in danger in the church and religious environments is that, is that we have too, too narrow of an understanding of what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to, to walk with Jesus and to grow and to be sanctified or become more like Jesus over time. And so Jesus is the way. He is the destination, and he is the way to get to that destination. However, everybody has a different journey as they follow the way, right? And so I go to Colorado every winter to visit my best friend who lives in Colorado Springs, and we go snowboarding in the mountains, and it is amazing. And to get from Denver to Keystone, Breckenridge, Vail, Beaver Creek, wherever we're going to snowboard, we ha- that's our destination, right? And there's a way to get there. And so you get on I-70, and you're driving through the mountains, and then on the journey, you have to make a choice. You either take the Loveland Pass, which is this beautiful, mountainous, winding journey, and if it's just snowed, it's terrifying. It's about 20 miles of mountain pass, but it gets you to the destination. But in 1973, they decided we have the technology now and the ability to blow a hole through this mountain. So now, instead of taking the Loveland Pass, you can take the Eisenhower, Eisenhower, Tower, Eisenhower Tunnel 1.6 miles through the mountain. Straight shot, right to Keystone. It's amazing. Depends on, you can choose. And as Jesus uses this idea of being the way, it is not just a metaphor. He's actually the way to heaven. But in scripture, it's also a metaphor for the fact that we're all on a journey and he invites us to follow him. He is the way to salvation. He shows us the way to follow him. But then the winding way is different for each one of us. Some of you have been on the long journey, the Loveland Pass, like, "Ah, I don't know if I'm going to go over the edge. It's slippery. It's icy. These switchbacks are terrifying. That feels like your journey. Others, you're like, man, straight and narrow. I went right through the Eisenhower Tunnel, right through the heart of that mountain. And Jesus can do either, right? He can blow that mountain out of your way. He can make your straight shot to heaven if he wants and if he chooses and if you choose that road. He can also walk with you through the Loveland Pass. So I just want to remind us, church family, pastorally, that we need extreme grace for one another, that as God knows us and sees us and we grow in our love of him, as we know God and see God and grow in our love of God, you and I need to know one another and see one another and grow in our love of God together and understand each other's journeys and point one another to Jesus as the way, he's the destination, look to the future but then be gracious to walk with one another on our journeys towards Jesus. Amen? Jesus is the way. He's also the truth, though. So he says, I am the way, and I am the truth. He's the substance of what is real. This is what he means by truth. I am the way and the truth. 
This is a relational trust of Jesus, which was his constant invitation to the disciples. Follow me, be with me, listen to me, do life with me, eat with me, laugh with me, cry with me. This is how you get to know the truth. Truth, again, isn't just a cognitive understanding or a checking off of theological or doctrinal check marks. It's a relational connection to a person who we can trust. Jesus is the truth. The Christian faith is built on the person of Jesus, not a bunch of ideas about Jesus or about God. It says, I am the truth. You want to know the truth about the Christian faith? Get to know Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's what he's saying. Look to me. Look to me. You will see truth as you look at me. And so truth requires a relational trust of Jesus. It requires a growth mindset to discover new realities and truths about who Jesus is. Now, the Bible teaches us that God is unchanging. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they are true. It's substance. doesn't change. However, our understanding and experience of God changes over time as we grow and mature. And so we continue looking to Jesus with one another, trusting that he is the truth, and then he is also the life. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He says in John chapter 10, I am the abundant life. And so when we know Jesus as the way, when we follow him on the way, when we know him as the truth, the one who we can trust, we begin to experience his abundant life. I love how Eugene Peterson says it in his book, The Jesus Way. He says, the Jesus way wedded to the Jesus truth brings about the Jesus life. We can't proclaim the Jesus truth, but then do it any old way we like. Nor can we follow the Jesus way without speaking the Jesus truth. My concern is that the Jesus truth seems to get far more attention than the Jesus way. Jesus as the way is the most frequently evaded metaphor among Christians whom I have worked with for 40 years, as a, 50 years as a North American pastor. In John 14, 6, Jesus so clearly and definitively sets before us that the Jesus way comes first. We cannot skip the way of Jesus in our hurry to get to the truth of Jesus. The Jesus way wedded to the Jesus truth brings about the Jesus life. Amen? I think that's really profound and powerful. I would also caution against the pendulum swinging too much to now we're all about the Jesus ways and we're neglecting the Jesus truth. I think he rightly says it. The Jesus way wedded to the Jesus truth brings about the Jesus life. That's what Jesus seems to be saying. I am the way and the truth and the life. He's told us in John chapter 10 that in me is abundant life. As you follow me, as you experience me, as you trust me, you will experience life. Older Christians, and these are some generalizations, but I think a lot of you will resonate with these generalizations. Older Christians tend, have tended to focus on like truth, knowledge, Bible study, there's a swing among younger Christians where they tend to focus on the ways of Jesus, the ways of Jesus, doing the things that Jesus did. And so I think that's a, it's a good correction, a reminder to people who are like, Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, know the word, know the word, know the word. Yeah, we need to know truth, absolutely. But let's not separate it from the ethics and the ways of Jesus. Right? So the older generation sometimes needs that correction. I think the younger generation, in your zeal for the ways of Jesus... Let's not forget about the truth of Jesus, that we need to know the scriptures, know God cognitively and experientially. And so I love that Jesus puts these together. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the path. Hold the tension. 
the Jesus way wedded with the Jesus truth brings about the Jesus life. And this is the thrust of John's gospel. And then Jesus goes on to answer Philip's question, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Again, this knowing, it's a relational knowing. Philip, I am revealing God the Father to you. I am the way and the truth and life. I am the way to God the Father. I am the way to eternal and abundant life. I am the door. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, truth, and life. This is what Jesus has told us in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Jesus is all. And so church family, as Jesus closes up here and talking to Philip, he says, have I been with you this long? You still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, trust me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. All the things that I've done in your midst, believe. See and believe. See and know. See and love. And so, church family, Jesus invites you and I to himself this morning to know him cognitively through his words. Here's, here's who Jesus was. Here's how Jesus lived. Here's what Jesus taught. I'm understanding that at greater lengths also know him experientially in his love. To, to receive his invitation to walk on the way, to take the path towards the de destination that is eternal life with God our Father. And he said, I, I have left to go and prepare a place for you. And so this morning, I want to invite you to the table yet again to be reminded that Jesus is not physically present with us, but he has given us these elements to remind us of his physical presence, that God was in flesh. He had a body that he gave for us. He had blood that he shed on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. He says, I have now left to prepare a place for you. That day is coming. Trust me. Consider the future. Look to the future and look to me. And so the elements are here at the table to remind us of who Jesus is and what he's done in our place on our behalf. I'm going to pray, and then if you want to walk with Jesus and do life with him, these elements are here to remind you of who Jesus is and what he's done. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for who you are. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust in you to consider the future that you are preparing for us and to keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. I pray that as we do that this morning, that you would meet us in whatever state we're in, whatever circumstance we're in this morning, and give us peace. May our hearts not be troubled as we trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.